house. No, the right no, house. I didn't get We want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. Behind everything he knew. Shannon! Yeah! For freedom. You could be my serving boy. Don't call me boy. In my imagination, America is a wonderfully modern place. Who is this bit of a sniff anyway, huh? She's my sister. And I'm your mother. But even in the land of the free, nothing but an ignorant mick. Everything has a price. We haven't eaten for three days. I'll work for food. I don't hire Irish. All they have left is their dream. But America was built one dream at a time. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast doom-scrolling with our coat hanger telescopes. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, Chris File, and I'm here, as always, with the true luck of the Irish, Joe Reed. Chris, I'm frightened. Oh, top of the morning to you. I am legitimately, I think, with good reason, scared about this podcast episode because I remember not long ago we did an episode on a little movie called The Walk, and the two of us proved to be utterly incapable of resisting the temptation to drift into accent work and ill-advised dialects that are not our own, and I just don't see us being able to similarly resist the urge to approximate the Irish accents that are attempted going to be very interesting in this movie. Perhaps before we stumble down that rabbit hole, we should announce our news. Joseph. We have news. Announce our news. We're on Spotify now. We are. Come listen to us on Spotify. It's going to be like an episode or two behind of when it actually like hits Spotify. But hey, listeners, if you like us so much, you want to listen to us on another platform, or if Spotify is easier for you, you can now find this at Oscar Buzz on Spotify. You should. How exciting. We also have, uh, because at this point it is November... We all need nice things. We are doing, once again, a very nice thing for y'all. We are doing another listener's choice for Christmas. Okay, now that sounds like it's a long time away, but we want to really make this one special for you guys. So we are taking everyone's suggestions. Meaning, if you want to throw out an option at us, whether on Twitter or on our email, you can list us one movie. Now, don't get crazy. Don't get crazy. So if you want to either tweet at us at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz, what you think our listeners choice should be, please do so. You can also email us at had Oscar buzz at gmail.com. Uh, throw out one movie, the top four options that we hear. Yes, I will be tallying all of these myself. 
The top four options will be a poll on our Twitter at the beginning of December, and then that's going to be your listener's choice. It's all fully organically chosen by you guys. Now, we want to remind you that our parameters for our podcast are a film can't have been nominated for an Oscar, any kind of Oscar, and it had should reasonably have been in an Oscar conversation. Yes, that's the, 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 the we should be able to make a case for it. We can, you know, we've been known to be a little elastic on this kind of thing. I think our episode today, um, we can talk about how seriously uh, uh, Oscar destined this movie ever was. But um, nothing that's so off the beaten path that it would that there was never an option for that. So we'll also hold, you guys know um, you guys tight to, to our rules that a full calendar year has to happen before we're going to discuss that calendar year. So I would also say 2019 is off the table. Okay. Don't worry, Cats episode will be coming in the new year. Right. John F. Donovan was technically a 2018 festival release. John F. Donovan is um unbeholden to uh, <laughs> such fluid constructs as time. Um, uh, yeah, very true. Very true. Jacob Tremblay, The Eternal Exception. Yes. You can throw out any Jacob Tremblay movie. That's fine. Yeah, that's fine. Don't throw out any Jacob Tremblay movie. I'm trying to think of what ones you could for you. I'm I'm also really excited to see what the pool of these movies are that you guys want to hear. So once again, tweet at us, hat underscore Oscar underscore buzz, uh, or email us at hatoscarbuzz at gmail.com. Yes. Excellent. On to the movie at hand today, uh-huh. Joseph. Yeah, far Joseph. and away. Yes. Doesn't anybody stay? This in is one the other problem: anymore? is that my name is Joseph, and there's a character in this film called Joseph, and it's just gonna be really. <laughs> God, hard. you're just throwing me down the Blarney Stone well of accents <laughs> right away because I immediately said your name is Joseph or Joe, but his name is Joseph. Jo- I can't really do it, Joseph. It's very you got to you got to be angry Joseph. like like Shannon is. Joseph. You got to be Joseph. Get out of these stables. I don't know. I'll I'll He's stab I'll stab your leg with a pitchfork. What's up? See, you already did a better Irish accent than I did. Speaking I, of which, like once again, we record well enough in advance, so obviously no spoilers because I don't know what's happening in the game show, but. I'm also going to have a hard time not just falling into accents this episode, but talking about Mark on Great British Bake Off. Oh, God. I'm going... Oh, God. I'm going to slide off my chair. Oh, dear. Okay. The, guys, if the a little window into the experience of knowing Chris File and being friends with Chris File is being subject to weekly text messages about Mark on the Great British Bake Off, and the things that Chris would like to transpire with Mark. I become Sanjaya girl. Yeah, yeah. I become but Sanjaya like, girl. But, like, far hornier. Like, just explicitly hornier, I yeah, would say. Yeah, This is, by the way, not to, like, transition quite so elegantly... This is Ron Howard's horniest movie, right? Absolutely. Ron Howard, I think Ron Howard is so horny in this movie that he just said, never again will I make any movie with a sexual pulse. Now it's just Da Vinci Codes from here on out. Um, 
Yes. Yeah, this is. I I tried to think of another one, and the only the other Vinci movie code is the antimatter of horniness. <laughs> right, exactly. It's God being so against horniness that he like created an elaborate mystery for us to solve, so as to distract yeah. us from our horny impulses. Like Da Vinci Code has a whole subplot about like orgies and fornication, right? Am I remembering Da Vinci Code wrong? Yeah, and but it's not sexy. Know it. Yeah, you no. Never know well, it. and also the first movie is predicated on the idea that like Jesus like knocked boots with Mary Magdalene and had a child, right? Like that's the whole thing. And right, again, right. deeply not sexy. Um, the only other Ron Howard movie I could think of that see that had a sexual pulse, like like in any way comparable to Far and Away, was probably Splash. Right? Sure. He wants Not to fuck anymore. The Disney Plus version is like, let's just give Daryl Hannah some more hair so she <laughs> doesn't have a butt. Um, uh, and I, and uh, immediately previous to Far and Away was Backdraft, which I only basically remember as the movie where you could see William Baldwin's butt in like the one shower scene or whatever. But like backdraft is also, that's not a sexy movie. That's not a horny movie. Like this movie is horned up for Tom Cruise. Like you would not believe like the entire character motivation for Nicole Kidman's character. And part of it is that the script isn't great. So the script doesn't give you a whole ton of reasons why these two would actually want to be together, except for the scenes where they're like peeking in on each other in semi states of nakedness and it's like oh well now i get it like now i understand yeah, they want to look at each on. other's ghibli bits of course like they they need to be together it's the only and points like, where the narrative in this movie makes sense yes, yes yes um we should also mention that like ron howard much as we forget directed cocoon which is a movie that's like plot drives around boners right Right, horny old people don't remember cocoon no yeah there's the whole thing where like don amici's just like i haven't had one of these in years and like he wins an oscar yeah yeah it's funny that like that was ron howard's first sort of foray into oscar-ness right in terms of movies he directed yes am i right Uh, he even got a director's guild nomination for cocoon wow i didn't isn't that crazy realize that that is that's definitely crazy I mean, if you need a better statistic of how ingrained the whole narrative of Ron Howard of we will eventually give him an Oscar because we respect him as some industry legend who used to, who like started as a young actor and that became a director, it's that he got a Directors Guild of America nomination for Cocoon. That's genuinely crazy. Wow. But again, he had that thing where, you know, he's this child of hollywood right the andy griffith show into happy days and you know there's there's some sort of trajectory right where it's like oh well now he's making movies and now we want to pay attention to this and this whole kind of thing but yeah his career is interesting there are more like kind of fascinating little niches in ron howard's career than i think we give him credit for i think i remember when he took over solo and there was just this whole sense of like they couldn't have found a more boring director like Mm -hmm. ron howard is synonymous with dull and like certainly i've talked enough times about how terrible a best picture winner a beautiful mind is so like it's not like i'm not contributing we've talked about ron howard previously when we did the missing missing. on this uh but i think that was 
we talked about that movie a lot more in the context of 2003. It was our miniseries in Cape Blanchett. But he's made some kind of fascinating movies. Like, and some really good ones. Like, I think Apollo 13 is a really good movie. But, like, even stuff like Cocoon or Willow, which is, like, a fave of mine. But is like, when you talk about that genre of, you know, fantasy, pro proto Lord of the Rings kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. It's still super weird. Like it's a very strange movie. And and that was sort of part of the reason why I liked it. Like Ed TV sort of came at a very interesting moment in time and I think that's a really interesting movie. Um I don't know. What are your sort of general Ron Howard feelings? I mean, I think now we kind of think of him as like a studio junk director. That's why when he came on to Solo, it was like, "Oh, so he's just going to pacify and like blur all of the edges of this into product right Mm. i mean like what are the discernible like i think now at least the discernible like ron howard traits are like studio big budget director right of not necessarily Mm -hmm. franchises but like adult fare like really his only franchise is not one not two but three Da Vinci Code movies. Yep. Um, but, like, he's made big movies that have made a lot of money, like, all the way back to The Grinch. Um, yeah. And even well, in and the like, 90s, Ransom like, these was 90s a big moneymaker. Yeah. 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 Backdraft, like, I think, made a bunch of money. Movies for adults. Um, right. Yes. And now he has Hillbilly Elegy coming out this year with Netflix, which looks like a movie for no one. <laughs> <laughs> well, like I mean, uh, nominally, people who are asleep and are going to have a nightmare. Nominally, I guess it's for people who enjoyed the book, though, right? Like, there's this sense that there is an is audience it? for it. I mean, it's not not that, right? Like, it's not like this complete reworking of the book where fans of the book wouldn't recognize this movie that they made. Like, I think we can allow for the possibility that people who are not us <laughs> would <laughs> have enjoyed that Possibly. book and are looking forward to this movie. I know what you mean. I know what you from mean. From the from the day that trailer broke which was like uh, Caligula on the timeline. Um it was full anarchy. It just like it But we are looks also very much like the type of thing that is the worst kind of uh Ron Howard product. But it's also absolutely the worst possible kind of movie for our demographic. Like, right? We can... Like, the circles that I am in... actresses who have not gotten their Oscar before, like, it doesn't matter what they're making. We're going to be uh, the demographic for it. But it's this sort of poison pill, right? Where it's just like, we can't look away because it's Amy Adams and Glenn Close. But we're also, like, Mm -hmm. obviously going to be repulsed by everything to do with the story of it. Right? Yes. Well, I mean, even if it's not the story of it, it's obviously how it's being handled, which is in this like saccharine, cartoonish way. But I think I mean, so we'll much see how we feel about the film. But that's how I felt about what I was witnessing in the trailer. I think I I feel I just feel like everything about the book because the book was so notorious for being this sort of post twenty sixteen Trump voter apologia like however we want to look at that and it's just like okay well 
that's not something I'm interested in at all. So I just sort of tuned no, it out. No, not at all. But it doesn't look like the movie is that to me. Hmm. That's interesting. It does look like that to me. Or at least, like, it certainly is... It's going to sneak it in there in a way that it's not going to broadcast until you watch the movie. Well, I, I, I mean, I don't even know if the book was, like, outwardly, like, would have mentioned Trump in any way either. But it's just sort of, like, it's sort of just getting at this, like, demographic, right? Which is mm-hmm. poor, disadvantaged, white, rural... uh or not rural, but like small town kind of people. And mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. It's you, you get into sort of dangerous territory when you start, you know, delving into demographics that way anyway. And we'll see it when we see it. And it looked like it was well, certainly, more, I'm sure. Um, I, I would say I felt like it was looked like it was more making um, farce of those people than trying to understand them. To my eye. <laughs> but um, but you're saying that because it looks bad, whereas I don't think the movie is trying sure. to make them into a farce. I, you think you think Ron Howard went into that movie and is like, I'm going to stick it to these people. I don't think it was uh, approached with a modicum of taste that would have been maybe uh, <laughs> indicative of trying to respect and understand these people. <laughs> okay. All right. I don't know. But Ron Howard, what's interesting about that to me, like, it didn't really look or feel that much like a Ron Howard to movie, movie to me, because, like, these movies we're talking about, and, like, if he's known as a boring director or a maker of boring films, it's because, like, even now, I think there's a veneer of, like, politeness and inoffensiveness to most of his movies that, like go down easy um in a way that like we don't necessarily remember them like your running joke of uh frank langella fully reviving his richard nixon for the trial of <laughs> chicago seven i remember basically nothing of frost nixon well this a movie is the thing that was about the best picture and best director nominated yeah this is the thing about ron howard though is just like what is a ron howard movie like what 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 signifiers could we look at and just be like, ah, this is really going for a Ron Howard vibe. Like, I don't quite know. He sort of, he bounces around from genre to genre and it never quite seems, I know Far and Away got at the time a lot of comparisons to sort of like watered down David Lean kind of a thing Mm -hmm. because of the scope of it. It filmed in 70 millimeter. It was this, um, but it doesn't usually, even when he's hopping genres, it doesn't ever seem like he's going for, particular directorial styles it's not like he's making his john ford movie or his mm-hmm. um you know alan j pakula movie or whatever it's just like he's not really going for genre in that way he's not a visual stylist you couldn't like pick a significant right. frame out of any of his movies and say oh that's a ron howard which isn't to say that he hasn't made movies that are that look good or are visually impressive in certain ways i think some of his movies have i think the thing about far and away that i like and i think this is on balance a bad movie but it is a movie that knows that it's about two movie stars Mm -hmm. and it photographs kidman and cruz fantastically throughout the movie absolutely like in every there are so many great shots of them 
that I'm like that sort of play in this like clip reel in my mind of both of their careers. Like there were so many shots in this movie. I was just like, Oh, that's a great shot. I remember that shot. That's like, that's stuck in my mind. And that's even before we get to the land rush scene, which is the big sort of set piece. That's the one filmed in like widescreen and they're, you know, countless numbers of extras and wagon trains and horses. And it all looks incredibly grand. And I think that's, I think he pulls that off quite well. The problem Mm -hmm. is, there's no story to this beyond that. Like the the actual script of this movie is laughably bad. And I don't think Kidman or Cruz are good enough to elevate it in this movie. Like they're both to very the good. That it's, like, it's kind of like these two stars together that were a, like incredibly magnetic had already starred on screen together. And they were married. Were at this married. Point. Yeah. And like, were the hot couple for a decade. Like you kind of watch this and you can't fathom how the two people who are attracted to each other. Right. Um, like that's how like tepid the romance of this movie is. Well, for so long, and I feel like still there is this sense of if a couple is together in real life, if they make a movie together, it'll be bad. And I think they were like building blocks of that theory where Mm -hmm. they've made three movies together and only one of them is good. And in only one of them, are they credibly like... Uh, is there credible chemistry between them? Like Days of Thunder is a terrible movie. And it's always so baffling to me to watch that movie and it's just like yep that's the movie where they met and fell in love because it's just like huh that's interesting because you couldn't tell by what is on the screen and it's only in eyes wide shut that and i think eyes wide shut plays on their you know long history of marriage and it does not surprise me that that movie comes at what ends up being near the end of their marriage Mm -hmm. but there is no doubt that there is chemistry and fantastic acting and sort of like all the sort of like really interesting stuff going on there that is not the case in far away <laughs> now i mean it, it i kept thinking of like there's a whole boat sequence and like coming to america sequence that i could not stop thinking about titanic which would come oh i thought about titanic a ton in this movie i, I literally wrote down in my notes James Cameron watched this movie before he wrote the script to Titanic because there's so many beats of this movie that reflect that. Mm-hmm. Where it's like the firebrand redheaded woman and the the poor boy and they hate each other at first and yada yada yada. Like there's so much of that in Jack and Rose. When they dock, I it, they dock in America and it felt like reverse Titanic because the like dock scene is after. Right. One of the most laughable things was because of the era they are portraying she has stolen like her family silver and spoons literal silver in america to have money and it gets immediately stolen on the docks and (laughs) nicole kidman spends about five minutes screaming just my spoon yes she says that's a great i want to clip just that of just nicole kidman yelling my spoons my spoons oh no he took my spoons Also, beyond beyond Titanic, the other movie that I thought of constantly in this movie is An American Tale. And part of it Uh, is... Because of Robert Prosky? Well, Robert Prosky is playing Honest John from American Tale in this movie. Like, it is absolutely certain. And, but also, like... I will absolutely... I took a screenshot of our... One of the times we were actually texting about this movie, it was just us sending characters back and forth of who Robert Prosky was playing. I sent a picture of Oaken from Frozen, which Woo-hoo. he is absolutely dressed like that character at one yes. point. Yes. Um, 
it's he's Robert Protsky in this movie is very funny, but like, but there's also the fact that like they go to America and then her family comes to America unbeknownst to her after, by the way, their home getting burned to the ground in a scene that is not unsimilar to the Cossacks raiding the the Moskowitz family at the beginning of an American tale. But the fact that like she's in America and they're also in America and she doesn't know it. Like and then it ends up in the old West just like Fievel goes west. Like there's so it's all right there, people. It's all right there. Um I also you know texted in you, America. Nicole Kidman in this movie. You know, it's not in America. What? Any cats. There's no cats. There's no cats in this movie, nor are there cats There's in no America. no cats in America, and the streets are paved with cheese. I also texted you that the Colmini character in this movie is the logo of the uh, Notre Dame Fighting Irish, because literally <laughs> the first thing you see of him in this movie is him with, like, his dukes up in a very canny uh, impersonation of the Notre Dame mascot, so... Clearly, there's been some visual influence. Those are Ron Howard's visual influences, where An American Tale and the Notre Dame uh, mascot. Yes. Should I give a plot description? You know, let's do that before we get, like, too deep into this movie. We've, like, touched on the Ron Howard thing, but we're starting to get into the plot, so we should do a 60-second plot description. We should. Once again, we are here to talk about Far and Away, as I mentioned earlier, and you just kind of left it there. Doesn't anybody stay in one place anymore? <laughs> oh, wow. I did just sort of leave it there, didn't I? I let you weave your tapestry all on your own. Uh, it would be so fine to see your face oh, at God. the door. Oh, no. uh, see, now that to me is you're, you're, you're dipping into Sean Connery, James Bond a little bit there. Like, it's a uh, little... Um, I mean, Sean Connery's had his own problems doing an Irish accent, but... Uh, he yeah. has. He has. Yeah. Um, oh, once again, directed by Ron Howard, written by Bob Dolman and Ron Howard, starring Thomas Cruise, uh, Nicole Kidman, uh, the aforementioned Robert Prosky, uh, Greg of Dharma and Greg Thomas Gibson. Indeed. Barbara Badcock, Cyril Cusick, and Colm Meany. The movie had its world premiere out of competition at Cannes, but then opened May 22nd of 1992. Joseph. Yes. Do you think you could do the task (sighs) of giving our listeners a 60-second plot of Far and Away? I will almost certainly go over time, but yes, let's let's do this. All right. Your 60-second plot description for Far and Away starts now it's 1800 something in ireland and tom cruise is playing joseph donnelly whose family lives under the thumb of the wealthy landowners the christies after his da is trampled to death in a low-scale riot and his family's home is burned down by the rent collectors joseph attempts to murder daniel christie but he gets caught by the stables by christie's firebrand daughter shannon and he's injured and unconscious and she sneaks a peek at his willy under a bowl and decides he should come to america with her because she is very modern and she doesn't want to play her mom's dumb piano music anymore so the second they're off the boat in boston she has her silver spoons literally stolen from her and with the both of them broke, seconds. Joseph takes up bare knuckle boxing in order to earn money. And by this time, they're in love, of course, but they run afoul of sleazy local boss. And soon enough, Joseph and Shannon are starving, and she gets shot or something, and he returns her to her family who are now in Boston. And the time passes, and both of them end up in Oklahoma for the Great Land Rush. And they ride their little horses very fast and find some land. And Joseph fights off Greg from Dharma and Greg. And Greg is more, er, er, uh, uh, Joseph is mortally wounded and dies, except only for a minute because then his soul or whatever returns to his body. And he and Shannon plant their flag in the land, and nobody, nobody ever lived on that land before. It's totally fine. We cut to Enya and it's over. Yes, I'm glad that you got there to the end because the whole, like, land rush sequence 
is so upsetting because it's like they think they can just like plant. I mean, like this is this is this is history. This is history. Well, this is history. But like the movie has no perspective on this. That it's like they're just they're just gonna have this whole like charge and like fight each other for this land that is uh, occupied by indigenous people. Well, it wasn't um, anymore because they were all driven off the land previously by the government. So here's right, right, here's right. what's especially baffling about Far and Away. And there's a couple things. One of them is, because you can he make a movie about the, the Oklahoma end. land rush. It's a thing that happened. It's a terrible, you know, it's a it's an offshoot of an incredibly terrible and shameful period of mm-hmm. American history where literally the American government like moved all the Native Americans off of the land in Oklahoma to literally give it away to white people. Um, but also the fact that the theme of this movie from minute one is how important it is to own land, to have a sense of self and to feel for Tom Cruise's character to feel fulfilled. He needs to own his own land. And that, that, that is the central theme of this movie. And it like progresses and Shannon wants to have a place of her own and the fucking her parents, the wealthy landowners who get driven off of their whatever, like, estate by the peasants who are rioting or whatever, that they decide to have their, like, charming little restart all in Oklahoma. It's all about the importance of having land to call your own. And the fact that it is all happening in the Oklahoma land rush, which took the land away from people to give it away to other people, that Ron Howard doesn't have the presence of mind to at least know that this is a complicated thing and it should have a modicum of undercurrent to it. Mm. He has one one cutaway shot as the land rush is beginning to like two or three Native Americans standing on the sideline looking grim. And that's fucking it. Like that's the only acknowledgement in this movie that this would be a dark irony that all of these white people are looking for land and it's coming at the expense of people whose land were taken from them. There is no acknowledgement of it beyond that one shot. And the no. other thing that's fucked up about this is that this comes two years after Dances with Wolves wins Best Picture, which was a cultural sort of high point for awareness of native american history like there was a like there's this is on screen at least well that, that this is what i mean within the culture within like within popular culture there are yeah. this is the thing that has been like swept under the rug again and again and again but that was a sort of momentary high point for the culture being aware of this that was like mm-hmm. definitely a spike in that right so yes. for this to come right after that you can't tell me that this wasn't that you couldn't have yeah this like, isn't a movie that feels that. gross now today. Like it's right. a thirty-year-old right. artifact that, like, we can like it feel queasy about it the whole time we're watching the sequence, and the sequence is so loudly telling us, "Isn't this great? Isn't this thrilling? Isn't this America?" And like, yes. at the time, it was bad. <laughs> like, and like, I couldn't find any type of critique on the movie from no. the time about that, but no. I have to imagine it was out there. Um, like, I am not a person who relishes going back into old movies and applying modern day standards of correctness or propriety in it. Like, that is not my thing. I don't, like, I'm not interested in that. It is impossible to ignore it in this because the themes are so overt and so sort of bafflingly tone deaf and, mm-hmm. like, blind to history. It's so dumb. 
And it doesn't ruin the movie. The movie's bad on its own. But it certainly at least takes the movie's most impressive sequence and casts a pall over it. Like, Mm -hmm. for sure. Where it just, like, makes you question the movie's intentions, too. Because, like, as you mentioned, Dances with Wolves was a huge freaking movie, like, by the time that this movie was in production. Right. That, like, you had to have questioned that. So it's like, what's the whole point of this major, like, uh, like set piece that's, like, probably a half hour of the movie? Right. It's like, are you really just that, like bent on doing this type of grand canvas david lean or like uh old style western like sequence that like you're not even thinking about what the messaging of it is right yeah it's weird the other thing that surprised me was this your first time watching this movie or had you watched it before i had definitely seen it in like chunks as a kid but Mm -hmm. never like sat in front of it so like yes i'd seen it before this was like a movie that my mother loved and rented all the time yeah um i had seen it before too and i my in my memory the stuff the section of the movie that takes place in the west was more of the movie. Like, it really is just sort of, like, kind of almost, like, a tacked-on last 25 minutes of the movie, where yeah. this movie really exists in three stages, where the beginning part in Ireland, and then the middle part, which is the biggest part of the movie, which takes place in Boston. Where it becomes basically a saloon movie. Right, exactly. It's a saloon movie. He's putting up his dukes. They're fight, 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 or whatever. And Tom Cruise is more or less credible as a bare knuckle boxer, which is funny to think of because like (laughs) the other thing about Tom Cruise is just like, especially in this movie, it's just like he's short of stature as always, but also he has like the most alabaster skin sort of like tone where it's just like, and I get like whatever he's Irish and pale, but it's not like this, like, you know, sickly Irish pale kind of a thing. You know what I mean? Where it's just like, and listen, I have Irish in me. My skin is damn near translucent unless I sunburn. But I've never seen a movie that was hiding the fact that Tom Cruise is short less than this. Like every movie since this movie tries to hide the fact that he is short. Um, But like this one, he looked a little diminutive. He's he's a Um, wee little leprechaun in this movie. His muscular body, and I'm not saying this like in a creepy way because I've already met my creepy question at the beginning of the episode. And don't worry, I'll Um, make up for it in a second because we're going to talk about the bowl scene. We'll talk about the bowl scene. We got to get into it. Um, uh, We'll get into it. Um, his body looks exact like his muscles look exactly the same today. Are they yeah. Irishmaning his body <laughs> when he is on screen with a nude torso? No, he's um, kept he's kept his body his also like this is the thing about muscly Tom Cruise is and I have historically not now, but like through much of my formative years I found Tom Cruise to be wildly attractive, like incredibly I mean, that's attractive. A whole ge- that's a whole generation. Though. Yes, that's not abs- just you. No, right? But it's like, but it, but what I'm saying is, I'm not here being contrarian or whatever. It's just like I've never found Tom Cruise attractive. Like I have, I bought into the whole thing at that time and for a while. But muscles. Yeah, if you had a libido in the in the '90s, especially the early '90s. Stop lying. Muscles have always sat oddly on Tom Cruise. And I don't quite know how to explain it more than that, where it's just sort of like they've arranged themselves on his body weirdly. And his torso just sort of like looks bulky, 
but not ever super defined. It's like a whole. Do you know? Do you, do you understand what I'm getting at here? Like it's just. I don't think I do, but go on. I don't know how to explain it more than that. Where it's just like he doesn't seem like he was ever meant for muscles like that. His frame. Do you know what I mean? He's mm. a short guy. He just, you know. I'm trying to think of like another. I guess sort of like. You know how muscle sort of looks semi odd on Jake Gyllenhaal when he bulks up, when he really sort of like gets when like he's huge. Yeah, and it's just like no, well, you're, people you're, aren't supposed to be that huge. You're, um, you're Donnie Darko, man. Like you don't need to be like you don't need to buff yourself up that way. And it doesn't sort of you don't look at Tom Cruise in this movie and think like wow he like roided up or whatever. But it's just like I don't know. It's still weird to see him being you know like little muscle boy. It's he's just an odd person. Well, yes, I think in general, yes. Um, but the parts that really work for this movie in terms of, like, sexy Tom Cruise, and again, this is a deeply horny movie where Nicole Kidman's movie, or Nicole Kidman's character is canonically horny for this character. The scene after he gets caught in the stables, and he's sort of knocked out, and he's convalescing in the Christie's upstairs sort of bedroom, and the mother has strategically placed a bowl over his uh, his willy and bits, um, I say Willie because they say that later on. It's a in the ceramic loincloth. <laughs> yes. Um, we've talked about that scene, I'm pretty sure, on this podcast before because I've talked about how, like, formative it was for me. And I really gets blazed in, in my memory of, like, my tween self or whatever. Just watching this and just be like, oh, I want to see what's under that pool, too. And there's this, like, she lifts up Kidman, too curious about it to resist, lifts up the bowl and looks underneath. And the wide-eyed wonder on her face. She is, gives it like three full glances. She, she does. She takes her time with this thing. But it I remember like thirty seconds of cinema. But watching it as a kid, I'm watching it and I'm just just like, what is she seeing under there? Like, how great, how <laughs> magnificent must this thing be under there? And it literally is the only like. It, she goes from that to like you should come to America with me <laughs> in like thirty <laughs> seconds. It's so funny where she's just like, "I've got a great idea. You and that should come with me across the ocean." And there are no cats in America, and there's no bowls. You would be forced <laughs> to be nude around her. But it's but also, um, he just looks the best he's ever looked <laughs> in that scene. Like, I, it's probably that my you know my. Uh, formative years are, are making that determination for me but there's also you mentioned to me uh we were texting yesterday the anecdote about uh the the dance belt or whatever the modesty pouch that uh they had him in he had his modesty at uh, ron how ron howard wasn't um pleased with the performance he was getting out of nicole kidman uh which how dare you um <laughs> i mean this movie maybe Okay. We'll talk about Kidman's career in a second. Just tell this anecdote, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever. Um, So he has Tom Cruise remove his modesty pouch and then... In secret, without telling Nicole. In secret. So when she is actually lifting the bowl on screen, the performance that he captured that stayed in the film is her actually looking at his penis, which... I don't understand how that would get a better performance. They were married, conceivably. Conceivably, she's seen, seen it, it before, <laughs> right? Like, I guess maybe it's the, the surprise of it. Like the the you're getting a more genuine reaction from her because she all of a sudden is shaken out of whatever. Uh, or maybe the modesty pouch just looked really silly. Yeah, I mean, you know, 
you know, so it's like you're re- you're responding to this weird looking thing versus a, you know. It's also one of those directorial things. decisions that it's just like. I guess it's okay because they're married, but like I really hope nobody tries this thing with like actors who are not wed to uh-huh. each other, like because that's right. not great. Like, like yeah. don't don't spring surprise penises on actresses, directors. Like, let's all agree that that's bad. And not. we're recording this in the fallout of Jeffrey Tubin. Oh dear. No one oh. should be seeing penises they don't want to see. Uh, I, the thing about that is, and I get the whole thing of just like, it's bad. It's all bad. There's no justification for it. There's no defense. There's no, um, listen, There's there seems to be this like weird strain of like, yeah, it could have happened to anybody. It's like, no, it couldn't have. Mm, Truly. I mean, you have to make a good like 14 different. Uh-huh. 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 But the thing about that story, I was saying this to another friend of mine, and of course there were takes about it, so it it got it it, and the defenses of it sort of made it less fun. But for like a good twenty hours there, it was the perfect media story because it was a insane, b kind of hilarious, and c like a victimless crime. Whereas just like. Nobody was being sexually harassed. We all had to, ex- like, everybody on that call sort of experienced it together. And sure, it ultimately was an accident that should not have been made. And he didn't intend to show his coworkers his penis. But at the same time, like I said, there's a good dozen decisions yep. that you can make yep. so that it doesn't happen. <laughs> this, it's, the, uh, it's the great goofus and gallant story of our time, where it's just like, listen, there are very... Uh, clear-cut do's and don'ts in this whole situation, and he made a lot of don'ts. So, a lot of don'ts. Yeah. Um, but don'ts. yes, let's talk about Nicole Kidman, because the thing about Nicole Kidman at this stage of her career is nobody thought she could act, and everybody figured that she got the role because she was kid. She was Tom Cruise's wife, and she got. I I think there was there was a whole thing about like she got top billing along with him, and that was due yeah, to title. him pulling strings or whatever. And there was a lot of there was just this pervasive sense, and it didn't go away until To Die For in 1995, mm-hmm. where she's incredible in that. Everybody assumed well, okay. that Kidman was just a pretty face who couldn't act, even though. She, A, got the role in Days of Thunder, and then also, B, got the role in Far and Away because of her performance in Dead Calm, which everybody mm-hmm. agrees is great. Like, Yes. Well, okay, first of all, if you're complaining about this movie and her getting, like, above the title placement and she's got her face on the poster, at the end of the day, this movie is a romance. It's a two-hander romance. romance where, right. like, right. very even that way right. in, ter- in terms of, like... Above the title billing. It would your seem face on a poster. It would like, be more normal. of an overt action to not give her above title billing alongside him. Because it's it's a two-hander romance. It just is. That's just how mm-hmm. the movie is structured. I mean, her character sucks, but she's probably a better it gives a better performance than he does. Like they're both kind of at the same pure... level of not great to me. But I, I yeah, get what you Well, you're he has more embarrassing dialect situation going on. Um but, like, this is just pure, like, Tom Cruise early 90s magnetism. It's yes. not necessarily a great performance. No. Unless, like, especially if you're not equating, like, star persona, which, like, is a skill and a talent. Absolutely. But, um, 
And again, this movie knows how to photograph its stars. This movie is a movie star movie, and it's the one thing about it that I really appreciate, is that it feels Mm -hmm. old-fashioned in a good way, in that it feels like the kind of movie where they were just like, listen, get our two most magnetic stars, put them above the title, put them in this movie— who gives a shit about the script? Doesn't have to make sense. This is people come to a movie to watch movie stars, and and you know this is what we're giving them. And it doesn't make the movie good, but it works on a movie star level, I think. Mm-hmm. So there's that. I mean, certainly at the point of their careers where they were, because like going through the Tom Cruise filmography, I'm always struck that like how like meteoric his rise was in the mid 80s like Mm. there's not a whole lot of movies there before top gun and then after that he's like i'm gonna make one movie a year i was gonna say to catapult me he only makes nine movies in the 1990s which seems insane if you grew up in the 1990s because tom cruise felt like he was everywhere like he Mm -hmm. was the movie star this was before hank's sort of really came into his own. I know Hank sort of like had his rise through the 90s, but it wasn't really until pretty much at the end of the 90s that he was like Tom Hanks is ensconced as like America's, you know, favorite guy or whatever. Whereas like Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt sort of the same way. Brad Pitt was sort of like, you know, hot young thing through most of the 90s. Whereas like Tom Cruise was the movie star. And yet... It's only nine movies. It's Days of Thunder, Far and Away, A Few Good Men, which was the same year. I want to talk about that a little bit. The Firm, Interview with a Vampire, The First Mission Impossible, Jerry Maguire, and then two movies in 1999, Magnolia and Eyes Wide Shut, where he does it. Like, that's the point where it's Cruz getting weird, right? 1999. Mm-hmm. But, like, for the rest of that decade, it's just, and obviously Interview with the Vampire was another one where it's just like, he's going to take a chance. I mean, it's its own thing, but at the same time, like, we can look at it now where it's like, it is coded as queer, uh-huh. it is, like, very horny, like, it seems atypical now, but that was like a huge studio prestige product, those books were huge, the movie was a hit. It's surprising to me, as I scroll through his 1990s, how many horny movies there are. Because you don't expect, like, I don't think of Tom Cruise that way now. And yet in the 1990s, whereas, like, the only ones I can think of that aren't horny are A Few Good Men, The Firm, and Mission Impossible. Yeah, but A Few Good Men works partly as for his, like at least for his character as much as it does because like you think that he is incredibly hot. Yeah, oh yeah, it's a handsome movie. It is a Tom Cruise's handsome movie, but there is no sexual energy in that movie whatsoever to the point where you have Tom Cruise and Demi Moore, two massively hot movie stars at the time, and they have absolutely it's not that they don't have sexual chemistry is that the story never puts them in a position to have feelings for each other in attraction that way. Right. and i remember reading at the time and i actually don't know if this is true i should look into this more whether it, whether in sorkin's initial conception of the play whether demi moore's character was played by a man was like a male character which, oh, and they cast a woman. Which would make for, sense because yeah, 
Absolutely. Like there's just there's just no romantic angle to it. Um the firm he's married to Jean Triplehorn and she sort of but like the whole like the sexy angle there is is she gonna sleep with Gene Hackman? Like that's sort of that like momentary <laughs> thing in that. Noted Lothario Gene <laughs> Hackman. I love the firm. Um and then Mission Impossible is Mission Impossible. The whole thing about Ethan Hunt is that he's this weird asexual weirdo and i don't know i don't want to talk about the mission impossible movies but like jerry (laughs) Maguire is like like boning kelly preston in that scene and obviously it's like romantic otherwise but like there's horniness at the beginning of that movie magnolia for a character who doesn't have sex in that movie is like he's like a walking boner it's weird an id yeah yeah and then obviously eyes wide shut like goes without saying but uh yeah and then he kind of just like stops being horny almost like right away almost like it almost is like eyes wide shut was um a scared straight program for him where all of a sudden <laughs> like eyes wide shut was too horny and he was just like never again absolutely not I mean, never there's again. vanilla sky vanilla sky uh, which it kind of feels like uh, uh, an extension of that where he's like Maybe he was so traumatized by the Cameron Diaz character. Vanilla Sky in many ways feels like PTSD from Eyes Wide Shut, doesn't it? In terms of his movie star persona? I think so, maybe. I, I think, think Vanilla Sky is a fascinating movie. I think a little bit at first because it was like, okay, too much weird, too much sex. Vanilla Sky is a failed film, but it's one of the most fascinating failures of my it's lifetime, I feel like. And it is, if you watch it through, like, a psychological treatise on Tom Cruise, it's fascinating. It's Absolutely. such a movie about somebody struggling with his existence as a movie star. It's so fascinating. And in really kind of ways that I think are accidentally revealing of uh, the Tom Cruise stuff. But, like... Uh, other than that, what's a subsequent movie of his? Like, even, like, Night and Day, which is supposed to be, like, sexual tension, Tom Cruise, Cameron Diaz, back again, and it's just like, that. I don't buy that. And, like, Rock of Ages, where he's supposed to be, like... I was going to say, does Rock of Ages count? It doesn't! It doesn't! <laughs> You've seen Rock of Ages, it absolutely doesn't. It should. It Like, if it's doing its job, it should, but it doesn't. Did you ever see Rock of Ages Impossible on stage? movies? Uh, no, I haven't. That character, as conceived on stage, and now I can't remember the actor's name, which is too bad because I loved him in it. The guy who plays Stacy Jacks, and it's so, it's such a sexy performance in that guy's hands. And then Cruz comes, and he's literally just like the Edna Turnblad of that movie. And it's just like, why are you this? What's going on? I hate it. He decided, you know what I'm going to be, Brett Michaels. Um, <laughs> yeah. I feel like the Mission Impossible movies are, like, not sexless, but they should be, I don't know. There should be a little bit more, uh, I don't know. They kind of lose me a little bit. I don't love them as much as everybody else does. I definitely don't love them as much as everybody else does. The best thing about them, to me, are, like, the... I mean, some of the stunts are cool, and, like, I have a good time at those movies, even if I don't think they're great. But, like, Rebecca Ferguson is amazing. Okay. And, like, why... I get that Ethan Hunt is, like, married and they're both exiled from each other. Whatever. So you can't really have too much sexual tension there. But it's, like... It's almost, like, non-existent. 
I have never seen a film franchise get more of a pass or give have been given a lower bar to clear than Mission Impossible with Rebecca Ferguson, where people are just like, she's a lady <laughs> and they let her be part of the team. Isn't this great? And it's just like, y'all, like I this think is it's just that she's one of our underrated screen presences right now, where like she can like be given a really crappy character and have this fully formed person on screen that's interesting to watch. Like I, I, I but think you know what I'm talking about, right? right? Where like now. when she came back for the second one, and they're like, "She's really part of the team now, isn't it? Great." There's she's like, a, "She's a lady," and it's just like, okay, but like this is still just like Tom Cruise ego trip the the series, right? Like it's still just that. I mean, uh, is it Rogue Nation where she shows up? Yes, is that the one? Yes. Okay, yeah. The only thing I remember about that movie is her green dress. Yeah, there's that whole opera house scene. It's good, whatever. The thing about the Mission Impossible movies, and I agree with you that, like, in the moment, they're fun to watch, but they do exit my brain immediately. Just, like, absolutely immediately. Can we talk about the Dark Universe? (laughs) Sure. Go. I never saw The Mummy. Oh, my God. It's so bad. But you know who's great in it? Sophia Butella as The Mummy. Okay. (laughs) Um... I don't know. It's just like this weird new Hollywood hubris of like, we're just going to make serious, gritty, modern uh, monster movies that are not fun. And we here's six movies we have planned. And The Mummy is so bad and Cruise is so bad in it that like it immediately sinks this uh, very cynical franchise. Here's the thing about... And listen, I am... I like franchises. I like cinematic universes. I know that, like, I'm in the minority on that, but, or at least the minority on people who say the phrase cinematic universes. Um, I love the whole MCU stuff, whatever. But I think whatever you feel about M. Night Shyamalan's split, the great success of that is he managed to, in that final scene, turn Unbreakable into a cinematic universe without, like, having to make a press release about it or having Mm -hmm. to, like, announce that that what he was doing. And all of a sudden, the second that happened, enthusiasm for his next movie was at, like, a 12.5 out of 10 because of just, like, that small little thing. And just, like, he just did it totally under the radar. And, like, I think the further you can get away from announcing your cinematic universe ahead of time. Like, Marvel is the exception to that. Everybody seems to be weirdly chasing that Comic-Con moment where they brought out the entire cast and everybody, like, flipped their shit. And it's just like, they can do that, but, like, let's not all think that we can do that. The dark universe. Like, that's not Mm -hmm. really... Just make monster movies. And then if after, like, two or three of them you want to be like, hey, they're all connected, then, like, fine. But just... But it was also, like... Russell Crowe is going to be in these movies and um, uh, find someone among us that wants that. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. I was just so fascinated by the Dark Universe and kind of bummed out because, like, I love those monster movies. I love the Universal uh, monster properties. Like, I think it would be cool to do some type of franchiser uh, cinematic universe uh, with them. Yeah. To the point where it's like, 
Blumhouse took over The Invisible Man, which is not a movie I liked, but if they did... Really? You didn't like that? Oh, I loved it. I thought it looked cheap and bad. Oh, Um, I loved it. And it's it's starting to strain me on I need Elizabeth Moss to play someone who isn't crazy. Um, (laughs) See, that's what Shirley did for me, weirdly enough. Like... Oh, see, I think she's great in Shirley. I just think that The Invisible Man was like, okay, be crazy, but just just be crazy we don't you know you can just be crazy whereas like shirley has like texture she's playing a person you know um, i weirdly think the opposite <laughs> oh wow okay we'll fight we'll fight about this later okay um, but no like i would have and like you can have movie stars in them i guess if tom cruise really wants to i i could not wrap my brain around tom cruise doing that movie yeah um except for whatever they had probably paid him but like if they want to do those type of things like the invisible man with those universal monster movies i am all in for it um yeah i feel that i don't know um tom cruise i want to go back to far and away for a second do you have any recollection because i know you're younger than me of the sort of Irish exploitation in culture during the 1990s <laughs> where I I was still very young. So it's like, I don't know. And of course I come from a very Irish American community where like my neighborhood, I'm like part Irish and my family is sort of my dad's side of the family is Irish and Scottish and whatever. But like our neighborhood is very Irish. So then my like little 25% Irish became like the whole thing because of where I grew up. You are compromised. Um, Yeah, exactly. So like, I'm very much like in it already. Like I remember when river dance and Lord of the dance became a thing in like the mid nineties. And like, none of that to me felt like any kind of a revelation because like we did Irish, like there were Irish dancers everywhere around here, like especially in March, but like kind of also year round, like a friend of mine in grammar school was an Irish dancer. And like my cousins were Irish dancers and they had the whole thing and the dresses and the hair pieces and whatever. And it's a whole thing. So like that was never a surprise to me. That was just sort of like, yeah, it's, it's step dancing. It's a thing. Um, Well, I definitely remember, the whole like Irish exploitation you're saying because like Irish culture in the 90s had a whole like constant evolution probably ending with Angela's ashes in terms of like popular culture referencing like different periods and different facets of Irish life right, right? like th- this very year we're talking about the crying game as the best picture nominee um, mm-hmm. Sinead O'Connor so, like, had think- just hit a couple years before that and like that was a whole moment and um obviously like we'll talk about Enya but like Enya was in a moment and like that was very Irish the chieftains who also did work on the soundtrack for far and away were like a really like weird subcultural thing the commitments was I think the year before this movie and like that was a whole thing um it's a really like deeply rooted pop culture thing to the point where like most of our grandmothers probably have a CD of Celtic woman in their car. Uh huh. Yes. 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 All of that. Also, Leprechaun was only a couple years after this, so like clearly noted the... Jennifer Aniston vehicle Leprechaun. <laughs> okay, I I mentioned this in my letterbox review of it. Have you ever seen anybody who is less credible as a Tory? In your life as Jennifer Aniston in that movie, like, I just (laughs) don't buy it. I don't. Like, she looks like she could credibly play a lot of other people, but, like, Jennifer Aniston does not look like a Tory. 
I'm sorry. Listen, I... all I care about is legend Warwick Davis stays booked and busy. <laughs> he really does, though. That's the other thing. Like, good for Warwick. Speaking of Willow. Leprechaun goes everywhere. Leprechaun went to space. Leprechaun went to the hood. <laughs> Leprechaun went back to space. Leprechaun went back to the hood. Leprechaun uh, will go wherever you wherever you send him. Leprechaun should go back to Central Perk. I think Jennifer Aniston should make another Leprechaun movie. Oh, the other Irish thing from the 90s that I forgot to mention, which is a movie I've still never seen, weirdly enough, even though I should, is Circle of Friends, which gave us Mini Driver. Ah, yes. The great Mini Driver. Um, It's also the Brothers McMullen. Yes! Noted, uh, that's where I Will Remember You by Sarah McLaughlin comes from. You don't need to tell me that, but I'm sure other people listening to this do need to know that. Yeah, absolutely true. I had bought, I think I mentioned this before, um, when we did for i don't know why did i will remember you show up in anywhere but here is that why we talked about it there uh i mean probably throw a dart at any of our past episodes and that's where we could have conceivably talked about sarah but i definitely talked about (laughs) buying the cassette tape to the brothers mcmullen soundtrack for one song and one song only and it was i will remember you by sarah mclaughlin yeah it was there was it was definitely like Irish Irish mania a little bit. If if the 1980s were Aussie exploitation crocodile Dundee era, like definitely the early to mid 90s were when we all decided to get very fascinated with the Irish. And <laughs> this movie was definitely part of that. Even though everything in Ireland seems so vague in this movie, right? Like am, am I wrong? This the Jared Harris stuff and the um, that's Jared Harris at the beginning, right? Playing his brother? Yes, Jared Harris. How many episodes of Jared Harris, like, randomly shown up in for us now? <laughs> I should Natural Born Killers. Yeah. Yeah, like, and it's all, like, barely known Jared Harris stuff. It's not even, like, when we would have, uh, we would have known his name. The other odd, like, obviously, the whole thing about Ron Howard is that, like, Clint Howard is in all of his movies. And I remember when I saw his name show up in the opening credits, which, by the way, it's hilarious that his name is in the opening credits to this movie. Because he's Can in... we talk about the fonts in the opening credits? Like, <laughs> as if you didn't know, we are in Ireland. It is bright, like, Michelle Visage hated green in the fonts of a movie. That should be an illegal color for a movie font. It is the, as uh, as somebody who worked in a public library in my high school and college days, it is what I would call the Maeve Binchy font, which is uh, just sort of these uh, very, like, sweet Irish, whatever, probably romance. Serious 90s product font. Uh, but Clint Howard shows up in this movie for, like, a second and a half as, like, the, the boss at this, like, chicken plant or whatever that uh, that Shannon is working at. And has anybody seemed ever less period in your life than clint howard just like rolling up in a movie it just makes whereas like might not have been a problem had he been cast as a leprechaun (laughs) there should have been a leprechaun in this movie somewhere or another right like somebody like he stows away on the boat with them and that's the other thing that scene on the boat where there davis shows up at the end of the movie and says death to colonizers and kills everyone (laughs) yeah um uh the scene on the boat where they're uh at the whatever on the deck and they're sitting at the fancy little table and he's like cover up your ankle or whatever that also seemed very titanic to me like not to Mm -hmm. double back but like i'm glad that you also had titanic vibes from this because it's just like what if 
only the story parts of Titanic. Like, what if just that? Like, not the visual bravura. What if tape one the... of Titanic? Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, but what they if did... tape one of Titanic, but 15 minutes long? I would say I would have loved for Nicole Kidman to have been able to do an Irish step dancing scene in the in any kind of setting. And she's sort of, she gets, she's one of the dancing girls at the boxing match at one point, which uh, is upsetting that she ends up getting uh, aggressed by the... <laughs> the boss but yeah it's an odd so i mentioned that tom cruise makes nine movies in the 1990s during that same span she makes 12 which is sort of in keeping with her like nicole kidman works nicole kidman wants to work and she will and like that's not even getting into nicole kidman in the 2000s is just like movie after movie after movie after movie after Mm -hmm. movie it's uh she had that sort of like post marriage uh rumspringa where all of a sudden she's just like i'm free and there's that whatever that meme (laughs) of her and then it's just like fully iconic she makes eight billion movies after this but like even in the 1990s right so days of thunder billy bathgate where she gets that golden globe nomination which weirdly i think worked against her in that because it was the golden globes the sort of like pia zadora golden globes or whatever um Mm -hmm. People still were just like, oh, well, that was like a bought and paid for uh, nomination. She can't act. She just sort of like, that's what was one of the weird, um, you know, Golden Globe anomalies or whatever. Uh, Flirting, which always seems like an 80s movie to me, was 1991. That was her back in Australia with Tandy Newton and uh, Naomi Naomi Watts. Watts. Yes, her bestie Naomi Watts. Then Far and Away, a movie after that that nobody remembers really called My Life, directed by Bruce Joel Rubin. Michael Keaton. With Michael Keaton. And it's that he's dying and she's his wife, right? That's the thing? Yes, and he's like filming their life together. Mm -hmm. And it was this like self-conscious weepy that like never succeeded in the way it was bruce joel rubin's follow-up to ghost i'm pretty sure i don't know if he had a movie in between that that's the guy who directed ghost right i'm not wrong about that he wrote ghost who directed ghost zucker jerry zucker right bruce joel rubin wrote ghost and then he directs uh my life but my life never quite hit the way it was supposed to then, also in 93, she makes Malice, which is a movie I've wanted to rewatch forever now. That's an Aaron Sorkin People script. People kind of drag that movie, and it makes me really curious to watch it. I want to watch it again, because everything that I remember of it, I love. There's that, like, fantastic Alec Baldwin monologue. We've talked about it before. You ask me if I have a God complex? Let me tell you something. I am God. After Malice... 1994 is a great Kidman year where she makes Batman Forever, which earns her so much money, probably then and into the future. And then To Die For, which is, again, the movie where everybody finally decided to say that Nicole Kidman's a good actress and she wins a Golden Globe and she sort of opens a lot of eyes. And it was a real turning point in her career. Then 96, it's The Portrait of a Lady. It's Jane Campion. She's great and super underrated in that movie. Like, Barbara Mm -hmm. Hershey got the Oscar nomination, but Kidman's fantastic in that movie, and it never felt like she was ever seriously in the Oscar conversation, which to me is so strange. Yeah. Isn't that a really uh, packed Best Actress year, though? 96? Well, but 96 was the big sort of, like, indie wave where it was... McDormand for Fargo, Kristen Scott Thomas for The English Patient, Emily Watson for Breaking the Waves. Um, 
Brenda Blethyn. Brenda Blethyn for Secrets and Lies. And then at the Globes, it had been Meryl Streep for Marvin's Room. And then they swapped her out at the Oscars. For Diane Keaton. For Diane Keaton. So, like, yes, but I feel like, I think Nicole Kidman could have taken that Diane Keaton slot and people wouldn't have been so, or even like the Emily Watson slot. I think Emily Watson's revelatory in Breaking the Waves. But it wouldn't have shocked me if someone like Nicole Kidman could have. It's an intense movie. Well, but like, and also that that movie really played into the narrative of that year. We talked about this a little yeah. bit when we talked about Melancholia, about how, like, it was the indie wave and so whatever. Um, mm-hmm. But it's just strange to me that they clearly watched and enjoyed the movie enough to nominate Barbara Hershey, but not Kidman. So then 1997, The Peacemaker, which was the first big DreamWorks movie. 1998, it's Practical Magic, which I love. Did you read that? Called classic. Did you read that Stockard Channing? Um article i believe on vulture where they interviewed her about practical magic how did i miss this i think it was this week or maybe somebody surfaced it and it had been from uh from a little bit ago but go seek it out it's really good and fun hang on to your husbands girls (laughs) so all right what do we think of kidman in that movie 99 by the way is why we talked about it so like um kidman and practical magic i've always found so funny because She's clearly playing sort of second fiddle to Bullock, right? It's Bullock's movie. She's the protagonist. And Kidman is like her wild sister. And Mm -hmm. it's an interesting role for Kidman. It's not something that she would typically, I think, maybe even more than than now, because she did these like studio movies that kind of look odd on her larger filmography. Yeah. But, like, the character itself is not someone you would think of for Nicole Kidman. I wish she got to play more characters like this that are, like, fun yeah. and loose and yeah. kind of rangy. Yes. Um, but, no, I think she's fun. I think she's funny in the movie. All right. So, yeah, so that's Kidman's 90s. It's a really fascinating evolution to me to go from, like, Billy Bathgate and Days of Thunder to, at the end of the decade... The Portrait of a Lady and Eyes Wide Shut, right? Like, and even like mm-hmm. Practical Magic, which all of a sudden is just like, she really became a movie star this decade and became a really kind of like confident one at that. Well, and you can see her becoming the actress that she wants to be as well, because she she talks pretty extensively about how she's always motivated and interested in directors, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas the 90s, you can see her slowly starting to get to do that, right? right? Like, no offense to any of the other directors, but, like, it starts with Gus Van Sant, yep. and then, like, slowly she gets to do more of that, like, with James Campion, Stanley Kubrick, until now, it feels like that's pretty much all she does now. She works with the directors she wants to work with, or on the like tv project she wants to do right no i think that's totally true i think she i mean hers is one of the great sort of like self-built careers which is interesting Mm -hmm. to say because again the rap on her at the beginning of the 90s was very much that like these things were handed to her but she's built the career like you said, this is the career that she wants. And she's really been able to do that through both being very good in movies with big directors in being in successful movies when she's needed to, when she's needed to, you know, pull out a Batman forever kind of a thing. And sticking by her guns in a way that, like, I feel like, and this is not to disparage Julia Roberts at all, 
I love Julia Roberts, but I think it many times in Julia Roberts' career, she's strayed from the path and sort of gotten smacked for it, and then she's returned to the bread and butter to sort of like recharge, right? To make mm-hmm. to get everybody sort of like back on her side. And Kidman, and maybe it's because Kidman was never never really had her pretty woman, never became sort of like so uh emblazoned as a type in mainstream culture that like there's there was never a pretty woman to return to for kidman but i also don't think that that's her bread and butter her bread and butter is working with an interesting director right but that's the thing is she doesn't have a mainstream bread and butter to return to which is not to say like it wouldn't necessarily have to be romantic comedies but it could be like any but like that's not her center her center Mm -hmm. is really herself and well, her center now, like what you're saying, she could be entering that phase now because it seems to be that it is TV now. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. She's about, to, as we're recording this, this weekend, she's uh, her new HBO series with Hugh Grant, which is called The Undoing. Am I wrong? I just yes, literally wrote I, about this the other day. I don't know why I'm remembering. I haven't heard good things about it, unfortunately. It's long delayed. It was sort of pr- supposed to premiere in the spring, and then the, the coronavirus happened, and they sort of pulled it and delayed it. And I guess I, I don't think you're wrong in that, but I'm intrigued to see it anyway, if only because it is her. And I feel like... More than most actresses, I give that benefit of the doubt, where it's just like, even if it's not a great project, I'm interested to see what she does with it. So, What I will be foaming at the mouth to see her do is the Robert Eggers movie, The Man, where she plays a Viking queen. Yes! Like, uh, I'm sold, and like every other detail that comes out about this movie it's like i don't know if you get this but like i'm i'm good i'm i'm sold i'm already excited for this movie you don't need to tell me that bjork is in it you don't need to tell me that like it's filmed in i think some type of like ancient language or right like, I, I i'm good i'm I'm gonna be there guys calm down um am i wrong or was there was did she have a wong kar wai movie in the works at some point that seems possible I don't think it's like, I know I don't think it is anymore, but like, I feel like I remember had, I had heard about that at one point. I could be wrong. Listen, we just got to get through the prom. (laughs) We just got to get through it. Honestly, I'm leaving room that I could enjoy the prom. I don't know. I, we got to get through the prom and we got to get through hillbilly elegy and it's going to be fine. Here's the thing. The thing about hillbilly elegy, it could... This is, it's that time of year where listeners are always like, this looks like a, this had Oscar Buzz movie to us on Twitter. And like, our policy stays firm that like, we are optimistic about everything. And like, it could be a nominee, it could be a not nominee. It's so interesting to me that nobody is talking about it in terms of Ron Howard. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of his thing as of late. Like, it just like, like Ron I Howard some movies. digs at it, but it's just like, yeah. I don't know. That seems like kind of aside from the source material and the like Trump apologistness, uh, uh, that seems like the source of the problem. <laughs> when was the last Ron Howard movie that felt like, oh, this is a Ron Howard movie? Like rushed to a degree, I guess. Whereas at least in the uh, build up to that movie, people were like, "Oh, it's the new Ron Howard movie." In a way that I mean, like, there's so many movies of his that we can do, like in the Heart of the Sea. That feels more like that, I guess. But in the Heart of the Sea, which I definitely saw in theater and remembered n- almost nothing about it. Chris Hemsworth is he the lead in that? 
Yes. Okay. Um, that to me felt very divorced from its Ron Howardness in in its uh, publicity. Like I, I just feel like that was like the big seafaring whatever, and it was like it's a Chris Hemsworth movie, it's a boat movie, whatever. But I don't ever remember. Um, what was the Chris Pine boat movie around that same time? The Finest Hours? Yeah, I saw that one in Los Angeles. And I saw that one at the Chinese Theater in Los Angeles, the only movie I've ever seen there. I deeply don't know why. I guess that was what was playing there when I was there. <laughs> Probably, because you just wanted to go there. Um, but just remember very little about In the Heart of the Sea. And then, yeah, the 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 Da Vinci Code movies sort of clog up his 2000s. Frost Nixon, we've talked about being this like inexplicable best picture, best director movie that like nobody I've ever talked to loves. Like I've never talked to anybody who loves Frost Nixon. It's so weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody was enthusiastic about the time because like I was the one that was like, this is not going to get nominated. And like it just, it just sure did. did. It like and had no imprint even after it was nominated. Yep. Yep. It's true. Um, is there anything else? I'm sort of going through my notes about this. I liked Grace the Prostitute. She was fun. Um, she also was deeply horny for uh, Tom Cruise in this movie. Um, all that, that's... Razzie nominee for Worst Song. Okay, all right, we're going to get into this. Again, and we don't need to go into yet again about why we hate the Razzies. Yeah, because we, we don't do. need to give them more airtime, but sometimes this is fun. It's so stupid that of all the things to pick out about this movie, you're going to pick on Enya, who, again, is the easy target of the moment, right? Enya's been a punchline as long as she's been an artist, right? Because it's very sort of this ethereal easy listening halfway to ambient sounds kind of a kind of a musical style ironic uses of orinoco flow in cinema are always great it's great in the girl with the dragon tattoo it's great in eighth grade here's my deep dark Um, secret i kind of like end of days a lot like or book of days sorry not end of days uh book of days like why are we talking about (laughs) i really and i think it it's it's and maybe it's because again in my youth that song got married to this movie in my brain so like of course it makes sense in this movie but like i think it's a good end credit song it sort of keeps you in a vibe at the end of the movie it is again this movie takes an inexplicable turn towards magical realism in its final minute that is so strange we haven't even talked about him dying and coming back to life not only dying but his soul via the camera like floating away from his body into the ether and then she says i loved you and it stops it literally like like you want to hear like screeching brakes. <laughs> He's like oh wait we don't have to die she loves us guys and it comes rushing back into his body and it's just like when did this movie make the case for magical realism before literally the last minute of this film it's so you insane know what that is though what that whole thing where you can die 
and a woman says I love you, uh-huh. and your soul comes back to your body, you know what that is? Tinkerbell? It's luck. It's the luck of the Irish. Oh, my God, shut up. <laughs> that is the luck of the Irish. You can do that. That's what they mean. Okay, the other thing I wrote down in the land rush scene, which is gen. All right, I have a couple questions about the land rush scene. One of them, and again, it's fantastically filmed and it's really well done and good job. Um, these what end. these families that went out there and decided to make the race for their land with their little wagons or whatever. Why not just leave the wife and kids back at the starting line with the wagon? And you ride your little horsey out and plant your flag and have your wife come meet you later. Like, I don't, I guess it's well, that. theme parks didn't exist yet, so they needed something to do. I guess you needed to, like, get there and then literally stay there or else somebody would take it from you. And, like, maybe that's the deal. But it's insane. I'm watching these wagons and I'm just like, it's just going to slow you up. And there's these scenes of, like, wagons fully, like, flipping over ostentatiously and whatever. And it's just like, that's just bad strategy. Whereas Tom Cruise is there on his little galloping ghost of a horse. And it's just like, of course he's going to get to the land first because it's just him on a horse. He's not dragging his whole little freaking family from Toledo or whatever who decided to come out west to go get land in Oklahoma. All right, that's one thing. Another thing is there's a shot of this guy utterly wiping out on his penny farthing that made me laugh (laughs) so hard because it's like, dude, like the wagon people are one thing. You're on your little goddamn penny farthing on the like rocky terrain of the Oklahoma Plains. Like you're not going to make it there at all. That's not even fast. Like I don't even understand. What was this guy thinking? I (laughs) I would simply stay in a city. Generally. And again, if you're the kind of person that likes to ride in a penny farthing, why aren't you in a city? That's like, that's where, that's where you belong, man. Like I don't, it's so funny. (laughs) I think anything with a penny farthing is funny anyway, but like, especially that. Um, uh, where did to wrap this movie up the Razzies thing? I would realism. say Newsies won worst original song, but it was also nominated against The Bodyguard for Queen of the Night. And if I needed another reason to say oh, go to hell, Razzies, saying that Queen of the Night is the worst, you could burn in hell, Razzies. Oh, because it was like the fun song amid ballads in The Bodyguard. Yeah, like, it's go also fuck the yourself. Gay one. Like, shut up. <laughs> I mean, I guess it Get is the it. gay one, but like all the songs in the bodyguard I mean, are the, the gay, gay one. one. Um, yeah. What are the other nominees, by the way, now that you're looking at them? It is just three. Uh, it is a, a far and away is a double MTV Movie Award nominee mm-hmm. for sure best is. action sequence for the Land Race: Lost to Lethal Weapon three, and then on screen uh, duo also Lost which, to Lethal Weapon three, which is yeah a it's the worst of all the five nominees, but it's also the least. MTV of that era. Like, at that point, Lethal Weapon wasn't cool with the kids at that point. It was the third movie in, like, a successful franchise or whatever, but it's not like the kids were, like, clamoring for Danny Glover saying, I'm too old for this shit again. It was up against, it was Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman far and away, which, like, it's Tom and Nicole. Like, they were the MTV demo back then. Um, They were the moment. Come on now. (laughs) The bodyguard for Kevin Costner and Whitney Houston, again, absolutely was the MTV moment back then. White Men Can't Jump, Woody Harrelson, Wesley Snipes. I love that on-screen duo is romances and uh, bromances. (laughs) And friends. Yes. Um, Well, they already have Best Kiss, so... Right, right, exactly. Um, Who won Best Kiss this year? Best Kiss was Basic Instinct. Oh. Or no, it's Untamed Heart. I was looking at the wrong category. All right. The win- the, the year that Untamed Heart... This was like peak Christian Slater for MTV. Because um, he was also Most Desirable Male, I think, that same year. 
Um, uh, Marissa Tomei also won Breakthrough Performance. MTV loved Untamed Heart. Like, that was the greatest movie about um, a man uh, inheriting a baboon heart and then falling in love with a woman ever. Um, Can I talk about this Best Breakthrough Performance category? Can we talk about, like, five factions of gay culture warring together? Do it. Marissa Tomei wins for My Cousin Vinny. Holly Berry is nominated for Boomerang. Whitney Houston is nominated for The Bodyguard. Rosie O'Donnell is nominated for A League of Their Own. And for Sister Act, Kathy Najimy. That's a great category. That's a great category. I have no notes. I have like I have absolutely no problem with any of that. The 1993 MTV Movie Awards, I think, were like peak MTV Movie Awards for me. That was when I'm pretty sure that was. Oh, no, you know what it was? This was the year that they had the reenactments of movie scenes with the Brady Bunch cast, because it was Florence Henderson doing uh, Basic Instinct. It was... Uh, there's no smoking in this building, Mrs. Brady. What are you going to do, Peter? Charge me with smoking? Would you tell us the nature of your relationship with Sam the Butcher? I had sex with him for about a year and a half. I liked having sex with him. He gave me a lot of pleasure. And a 30% discount in Rumpfrost. Also, A Few Good Men wins Best Movie, which, like, they were catering directly to you. Absolutely. That's the thing. Is like, this was peak uh, MTV and me were, like, at that very same level. It's a great set of now. Go check out the the 1993 MTV Video, Video Music Awards or uh, uh, MTV Movie Awards nominations. It's some great stuff, indeed. But yeah, um, uh, uh, Lethal Weapon three winning both of those categories is dumb. Like Far and Away would have been a much more appropriate winner in both of those categories. But anyway, should be on screen duo Nicole Kidman and the Ceramic Bowl. Uh, okay, the other thing about the ceramic bowl scene, did you know that the uh, Irish town where they filmed those scenes was Dingle, Ireland? <laughs> that makes me laugh. Makes me laugh! <laughs> uh, ba, 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 magical realism, penny farthing, Shannon is very modern. Um, what else? Oh, the plunge and scrub scene. Speaking of, I know we like double back to horniness but like the the way that she watches she's looking at tom cruise when he's showing her the plunge and scrub method of washing your laundry is mm-hmm. so like literally there should be like a sproying like sound it's effect. very sexual it's a very sexual laundry it is it's very sexual laundry um and then later on when she's in oklahoma with her mother and she's showing her plunge and scrub and just she just goes plunge and scrub like she's so incredibly um (laughs) repulsed by this notion of plunging and scrubbing it's wild i feel like we haven't had a dialects conversation on this podcast in a while as we were like doing them readily every single week for a minute yeah but like this is a movie that's like kind of a punching bag for bad accents but like it is the irish people hated necessarily find them like easy to make fun of they're just bad yeah tom cruise's accent is bad but it's never gets to do an accent it's just not allowed what's funny is i found an old ew uh 
article about this and it's a very sort of like rah-rah article about this and it's Cruz talking about working with the dialect coach and how helpful it was and how much it improved his performance and whatever and then like the next article I read was this article from this Irish paper that is just like famously the worst Irish accents ever in a movie and the thing about Cruz's Irish accent in this movie is and it's again, the Irish complaints are the same that we hear from, it's just like from one scene to the next, he's from a different part of Ireland and blah, blah, blah. And like I myself, I'm just like, I don't, one, one all sounds the same to me. But the thing about Cruz in this movie is it's not that he has this like insanely over the top, he sounds crazy uh, accent. It's that every scene he like fades back into just regular Tom Cruise voice. Oh it's yeah, it's one sentence per it's one word per sentences in a dialect. Right. And and mostly it's just like, yeah, you just like you just sound like Tom Cruise. Whatever. It's whatever. And then Nicole, of course, is doing the thing where she's Australian, trying to do an Irish voice that is supposed to sound closer to British because of her class in this movie. So it's just like too many, too many layers upon each other, and I, my poor ears couldn't decipher what was supposed to be going on. So, um, but yeah, plunge and scrub. I enjoyed it. If there's a wrap up question I have for you, yes. mine would be because this came shortly after Tom Cruise's first Oscar nomination for Born on the Fourth of July, right. three years later. Right. Do we think Tom Cruise is ever getting an acting Oscar? Yes, I do. At some point, yes. I, I don't. Maybe not for a because while. At this point, I, I don't think he cares. And I don't I know agree. what, uh, like, when he becomes 70 years old, which is not as far away as you think it is, right. I don't know what type of roles he's going to play. I don't either, I don't but gonna at some point, he's going to get too old to be doing stunts anymore. And I think when that happens... Or he's going to die. Well, not good that that doesn't happen, but yeah. Right, um, right. But yeah, but yeah. It, it, it's, but it's, he, uh, it's like he is uh, wanting to get closer and closer to No, it. eventually he'll be filming scenes for Mission Impossible 12 from Mars, and it'll be a very dicey situation indeed. Yeah, he thinks he's filming movies from space, and I want to be like, you know, Gaga tried to do this a few years ago. <laughs> Didn't happen. Do you remember um, when that guy, I think he was sponsored by Red Bull because he had a whole like Red Bull thing did the like free fall from uh literally like almost space right where he uh do you remember this in like early 2010s and um it was a whole it was like a thing on the internet that day right where this guy's gonna do a free fall from the troposphere or whatever i don't know and Almost immediately after midnight flight, midnight flight to San Francisco. Right, exactly. Um, yeah, he plunged through the web of souls that was rising from uh, from the earth. Anyway, and was repaired. Uh, but somebody like the next day, and it was my favorite thing. Did a uh, put that movie or that shot of him doing the free fall and added the goofy holler to it, <laughs> so that when he <laughs> fell. It was the uh, the famous sort of like goofy like wahoo, and it's so it's still so funny to me, and I can't quite explain it except for that I'm a simple man of simple pleasures. But uh, yeah, yeah, uh, far and away a bad movie that I managed to enjoy on its own merits more often than I probably expected to. Let's say that. I was bored out of my skull, and also <laughs> it's offended. also long. It's just very long. 
This is we got lucky in uh, recent weeks. Well, I mean, I suppose Melancholia is like two hours and ten minutes, but this is two hours and twenty minutes, and it feels like yeah. uh, two weeks and two days. It does. I appreciated its horniness. I appreciated its movie starness. Otherwise, it's it's not good. It's not good. It's not. Joe, should we move on to the IMDb game? Yeah, let's do it. Would you like to tell our listeners what that is? Sure, yeah. Every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game, where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try and guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of those titles are television or voiceover work, we mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue, and if that is not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints. It's the IMDb game. Would you like to uh, give or guess first? I'll guess first. Okay, cool. Um, so for you, I went back to the first film of Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman together. We are talking about Days of Thunder. Who else is uh, one of the top billed performers of Days of Thunder? Mr. Robert yeah, Duvall. I was going to say, you're giving me Duvall, huh? Okay. I am. Robert Duvall, who has a long career of very well-known movies, so this is going to be difficult. And I'm pretty positive Days of Thunder is not going to be one of them. So, all right. So he's in the first two Godfather movies, which are pretty well known. And he's probably like no worse than third or fourth build in them. So I will say The Godfather. The Godfather, correct. The Godfather. Maybe he is Oscar nominated for. He is. He's great in that. Uh, The Godfather Part 2? No. Okay. All right. Movie he is not Oscar nominated for. Right. He did win an Oscar for Tender Mercies, so I'm going to guess Tender Mercies. Incorrect. That is two wrong guesses. (laughs) Your years, hold on, my page is loading, are 1979, 1997, and 2003. Okay. So not his uh, appearance as himself in 2018 Widows. And not either of his other Oscar nominations for A Civil Action or The Judge. All right. So, 1979 is Apocalypse Now. It is. Is 1990... Wait, no. The Rainmaker is John Voight. Never mind. Um, I'm going to put a pin in 97. No, I'm not. Because he was also Oscar nominated for The Apostle. Correct. The Apostle. And then what's the other year? 2003. Here we did a miniseries on. Yeah. All right. I don't think that's Gone in 60 Seconds. I think that movie is like... Gone in 60 Seconds is 2000. 2000. Right. Thank you. Okay. Um, He has three movies in 2003. Be willing to bet this made the most money. All right. Let's see. 0303. What's going on in the culture in 03? Um... And what are Robert Duvall movies? It's not starring. Uh, what should I say? It's not Space Cowboys. It's not uh, Deep Impact. Those are all before that. Uh, it's not those kind of movies. It's, I mean, is it's it, probably the same audience. Is it serious? Is it like very serious? It, uh, it's serious. Is it Oscar-y? Uh, maybe if it had been, like, a decade previous. <laughs> okay. Um, is it, like, sentimental? Uh, you could say that for its genre. It's like, when this genre 
was revitalized. There was a clear formula. Is it for secondhand like lions? It is not secondhand lions, so that is two thousand three. Okay, it is this genre of movie when they like tried to make a comeback. It very much followed a formula of like two guys and a lady above the bill title, above the uh, uh, title above the bill. You know, two guys and a lady. So like buddy comedy where one of them's got a girlfriend. Uh, not a buddy comedy, no. Right, because you said it's drama. Okay, but like prestige. This movie probably blurs with at least, like, two other movies in your brain. Okay. A dead genre. Western. Yes. Open range. Open range. I like, open range was, like, male actor, yep. male actor, lady actor. Is that... Did... Appaloosa was... Yes. Is that Appaloosa? Male actor, male actor, lady yep. actor. Uh, is, is open range directed by Costner? It is that w- I was almost going to go there with Dangers with Wolves, Dances with Wolves, but uh, I figured you would have got it right away. Um, it's I remember certain critics really riding for that movie as yeah. a as a return to the genre. I remember it got compared favorably to The Missing when they were talking about um, mm-hmm. genre like Western, the sort of a Western revitalization. Um, but Open Range opened in August and got very forgotten about. It made money, if I remember correctly. It's the rare Annette Benning movie that I haven't seen, but I also sort of resent the idea of her sort of like being the like thankless woman role in a Western for Kevin mm-hmm. Costner. So perhaps at one day I'll watch it. Probably not. But, you know, I'm not a Westerns guy. All right. Well, I'm glad I got that eventually that's a weird that's a weird known for for robert duvall i would i would venture to say he's not known for open range i'm gonna say that right how is that movie on tnt right now (laughs) are your dads like sitting there in their lazy boy and watching open range and looking it up on their phone exactly all right chris i have chosen something for you uh nicole kidman as we said uh got this role as well as her days of thunder role because she was so good in the 1989 movie dead calm where she was 22 years old in that movie playing a mother of uh a child who gets killed at the beginning such of that an movie. icky movie but she is amazing she's and that great. movie is genuinely terrifying it's such a good movie she's 22 in that movie her love interest sam neill is 42 in that movie there's a 20 year time Jesus difference which I did not appreciate at the time, even though it does sort of get baked into the story about how, like, Billy Zane sort of is like, you know, why are you with him? And you should Mm -hmm. be with somebody young and vital like me. Um, I'm not going to give you Billy Zane, even though I considered it. I'm going to give you Sam Neill. So what's the known for for Sam Neill? Uh, Mr. Samuel Neill definitely has Jurassic Park on there. That's the no-brainer, Jurassic Park. Certainly Jurassic Park. Um... Uh, do I think because he's all he's not in Lost World, but he is in Jurassic Park three. Do I think Jurassic Park three is in there? Or do I think anyone gives a shit? Um, sure, I'll say it. Jurassic Park three. Jurassic Park three is correct. Cool, 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 cool. Um, he's in the third Omen movie. I'm gonna take a wild leap. No one gives a shit about that. Um, is there any TV? Hasn't he done a lot of like British TV? He probably has, but there is no t- there is no uh, television and no voiceover. Mm. Which movie is he opposite Robin Williams? Is it Bicentennial Man? Bicentennial Man. It's not Bicentennial Man. No, that is a strike. Okay. 
Um, I want to now look and see if he is in that movie, though. It's 1999, right? Yeah, he I is. He's in Bicentennial, man. He's in a lot of, like, 90s crap. Like, um... He is. In the Mouth of Madness, Event Horizon. In the Mouth of Madness is a creepy movie, I will say. That's a weird That's Clive movie. Barker, right? That's a Clive Barker movie? I think movie? so. He's... No, he's not in The Serpent and the Rainbow. That's Bill Pullman. Oh, In the Mouth of Madness, it's based on a Clive Barker... I think it's based on a Clive Barker story, but it's directed by John Carpenter. Uh, oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, uh, okay, I'm going to guess that one of them is on there. And I feel like because there's more famous people in it and like that's going to get the SEO count up high, I'm going to guess Event Horizon. You're correct, Event Horizon. Ah, Where yeah. he plays... Uh, cuckoo pants man in that film that movie is fully cuckoo pants it's kind of fun i didn't watch it until last year and i remember i had heard so many good things about it that i was very much looking forward to it and i didn't like it i wanted it to be better i don't know i wanted to be something else that's sort of like seen as like paul ws anderson's good movie and i'm just like "Eh, it just seems like a junkie paul ws anderson movie to me but it's a movie about space madness and who doesn't love a movie like that i of course uh always go to sunshine for my go-to <laughs> space madness i movie. need to see that have you never seen danny boyle's sunshine I haven't. Oh, I haven't. it's so good and so many great actors are in it you will love it if only i know for the people cast. i love like michelle yo exactly exactly um, and the music's so okay. good all right you have I feel one like the next one's going to be a costume drama i know there's costume dramas in there I just oh wait 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 um no not a costume drama but he's opposite Meryl in Dingo Ate My Baby um is it Dingo Ate My Baby well you have to give me the title of that movie which has a um, American title and an Australian title which I don't remember uh, a cry in the dark cry in the dark it's not a cry in the dark um do you remember when a few years ago when Meryl was on Jimmy Kimmel's show and he asked her to uh see if she could remember all of her oscar nominated roles and she didn't she just call it dingo ate my baby no no he was she said a cry in the dark and he said no it's not one of your oscar nominations and so the headlines that next day were meryl even meryl streep can't remember all the oscar the all, all her oscar nominated roles and it's because he got the title wrong because he was pulling his staff or whatever was pulling from this imdb and imdb lists that under its australian title which is evil angels but I'm just saying a gay staffer wouldn't have Okay, that was one of my notes. I was just like, why doesn't Jimmy Kimmel employ any gay people? Because they would have caught that. But B... Or like women who watch movies. But like people at like new, like entertainment news aggregation sites were just like running with that headline. Meryl can't remember all of her because that's probably how Kimmel's staff like put that in the press release that they sent this clip out to people. And we're like just parroting this headline. But if you watch the clip, anybody who knows... Meryl Streep's Oscar nominations knows that she was nominated for uh, for a cry in the dark. Cry like, in the dark. And did she get anything else wrong, or did she forget any of them? No, it was only he gave her like whatever she she guessed like two or three correct, and then she said a cry in the dark, and he said no, and that was the end of the the game or whatever. They didn't like, they didn't have her name all twenty of them or whatever. Um, so she was like she didn't get any wrong, and I was just like a there's no gay people on staff at Kimmel at the time. Um, B 
are there no like no homosexuals at these entertainment websites who are gonna like f- fact check? I'm like, I get that everybody's twelve or years old or whatever, um, or watch the clip entirely. It made me so mad, and it's again one of those things I get mad about that makes absolutely no difference in the grand scheme of life. But I was just like, I was so mad. Anyway. <laughs> Anyway, that was years ago. I've totally let it go. I don't even remember it at all. Okay, you have I've one I've had more. two wrong guesses, right? Yeah, so your year for your missing film is 2016. Hmm. So it's new. It is. Is it a new costume drama? No. I will tell you, this is a movie where I was a good two-thirds of the way through this movie before I realized it was him in this movie. Oh. How's that possible? It's possible. He's like... It's Sam Neill. I know. It's 2016, so it's not Possession. I should have guessed Possession already, even though I shouldn't have. Yeah, you shouldn't have. You would have been wrong. I would have been wrong. Um, You didn't know it was him. It's not a voice performance? Nope. It's a a him performance. It's a live action. I really liked this movie. Okay. Did I like this movie? I don't know. I think you. there's a very good chance you would have. It was di- uh, written and directed by a future Oscar winner. Oh, so somebody who in the past, like, three years has an Oscar. Yep. That would have Sam Neill in it. Um, this was... People who have won for directing. It's not... Wait. This wasn't this director's breakthrough movie. It came right after. It sort of came on the heels of this director's breakthrough movie, and they sort of in tandem became his breakthrough. And then, like, he sort of shot up in uh, in recognition after that point. Got it. And they this person this director won an Oscar. Did they win an Oscar for directing? No. Did they win an Oscar for writing? Yes. Okay. People who have won Oscars. For writing. Jesus Christ, I forget that Taika Waititi won an Oscar last year. Um, uh, is it one of the Taika Waititi movies? It is. Oh, it's Hunt for the Wilder People. It's Hunt for the Wilder People. Do you like that movie? Is that a movie you like? It's fine. I really liked it's it. It's fine, I laughed. I really enjoyed it. That and What We Do in the Shadows came like within a couple years of each other. And What We Do in the Shadows is awesome. Yes, and the TV <laughs> show's even better, and probably so. Um uh yeah hunt for the wilder people he's got like the beard or whatever and for whatever reason that's right i just wasn't connecting it and all of a sudden i'm just like holy shit that's sam neil i was so uh thrown it was crazy well done well done uh so uh before we wrap things up guys once again reminder we're taking uh submissions for your listeners choice episodes we're gonna pull all of your answers you only get one yes i will have a spreadsheet and everything to make sure no one's cheating you'll get one suggestion uh for the episode you would like to have in your stocking on christmas morning from both of us uh so you can either tweet at us at had underscore oscar underscore buzz or you can email us at had oscar buzz at gmail.com Joseph, I think that's our episode. It is. Good one, I think. If you want more of This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. Please also follow our aforementioned Twitter account, had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. The beginning of December, we will take the top four uh, polled uh, listeners' choice options, and then you will all get to vote on those four. Joseph. Yes. Joseph. God, yes. That's, I don't even know what that was. Um <laughs> 
Uh, Joe, where can the listeners find more of you and your stuff uh, uh, in Irish Inflection? Yeah, uh, you 25% can... 25% Irish Inflection. You can follow down to the end of the rainbow and find me pot of gold, at, uh, which is what I call my tweets. My tweets are my pot of gold. Um, on Twitter, at Joe Reed, Reed spelled R-E-I-D. And on Letterboxd, uh, where I am as uh, Joe Reed, Reed spelled the exact same way. All right, and uh, I'm on Twitter at Chris V. File. That's F-E-I-L, also on Letterboxd under the same name. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork, Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get your podcasts, which now includes spotify we're on spotify um a five-star review in particular really helps us out with apple podcast visibility so please plant your flag in this podcast and claim us uh which is something you can do because we are a podcast and not land inhabited by indigenous people uh that's all for this week we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz But there